Let's open our Bibles now to the book of James chapter 1. We are finishing up chapter 1 today in this just amazing letter written by our brother James. It it has been such a pleasure to, to study this and to preach this. I hope that it has been beneficial to you as well. Let's stand together one more time as you're able in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear now the voice of God from his word, James chapter 1, we are picking up in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. Lord, for, for your spirit who inspired these words, who, who now dwells within us, your people, who, who transforms us into the likeness of Christ by your word. For the same spirit who calls those who are dead in their sins to life and life everlasting. I pray, God, that your spirit would accomplish his good work in us and among us this morning through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. When I was 21, I dropped out of college against the advice of uh, anyone older and smarter than me who knew anything. Uh, But I did, and I can remember at the time thinking, well, that's it, I never have to take an exam again. I've done it for the last time. No more exams, no more finals, no more midterms. And then about 10 years later, I went back and finished college. And there I was back in the world of, of exams and tests and finals. And then I graduated and I thought, never again. That was it. I did it. I have reached the threshold. Then I started working on a master's degree. Then I was there again in the world of midterms and exams and finals and tests. As I finished that master's degree, I said to myself, this was the last time. This was the last time I'll ever take a test. And then I started working on another master's degree. And there I was again. Back in the world, I think I can say to you with confidence at the age of 48, I'm never taking a final exam again in the rest of my life. The reality is, though, and I think we've all thought that whenever we we finish school at whatever level that was, like, I'm never going to have to do that again. The reality is we never outgrow test taking. There are always more tests to take. Tests are a fact of life. In fact, the older I get, the more often I hear these words come from my doctor's mouth. We got some tests we'd like to do. (laughs) Tests are important. Tests are important because tests reveal what's true about us. In school, they reveal our learning. At the doctor's office, they reveal what's going on inside of our body. They tell us the truth about our health. No test, though, could be more important than the one that tells us the truth about our soul. The one that tells us the truth about our eternal destiny. We are going to one day, all of us, stand before the judgment throne of God. We will all die. 
God in that moment will judge us, either innocent and forgiven, or he will judge us guilty and condemned. How, how is it that God will judge you? If, you? if you put your faith in Christ, then God will judge you not guilty. He'll do so with joy. He'll do so with great pleasure. He will invite you to dwell with him, to live with him forever. But if you have not put your faith in Christ, then God will judge you guilty. That judgment will fall on you. He'll cast you into hell. You'll be punished there forever. The stakes are so high. The stakes are so high. Heaven is indescribably wonderful. Hell is unspeakably terrible. Both are forever. Both are irreversible. And the test of your destiny, the test of where eternity will be spent for you is a simple one. It's this. Have you trusted in Christ? The problem is this. You could answer yes to that question and be wrong. You can answer yes to that, that, that question on that test and you could be self-deceived. You could believe that you're bound for heaven but in reality be on the pathway to hell. You could expect that you will stand before the judgment throne of God and be greeted with song and rejoicing and open arms and instead find their judgment. And God knows who are his. He knows who genuinely trusts in Christ and who does not. But we might be convinced of our salvation and in reality not have it, not be in possession of it. How, how, how can we know? How can we know if our faith is genuine? How can we know if our faith is false? Is there some kind of test for that? That's an important question for all of us. All of us who profess faith in Christ, nothing could be more important for us than to know for certain, to know for certain whether our faith is real or whether our faith is counterfeit. We are even commanded in the New Testament to make sure that our faith is real, to not be presumptuous about it. You, Christian, are commanded by God to make sure your faith is real. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. He's talking to us. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Similarly, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You who profess Christ must be diligent to confirm that call. We need to, in the words of Paul, examine ourselves to determine, is my profession of faith genuine or not? And thankfully, God has not left us wondering how to do that. He's given us ways to test ourselves. Numerous times in the New Testament, we are given tests with which to examine ourselves, to do exactly what we're commanded to do, to confirm our calling and election, to, to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith, a variety of tests with which to do that. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. Peter writes about it. John writes about it. And James writes about it. In fact, we could consider this whole book of James, this whole letter, one big exam. 
That's what, that's what James is doing here. Paragraph after paragraph, James is rooting through our lives. Looking under the cushions. Looking under the carpets. Looking in the closets. Showing us the character of genuine saving faith. Pressing us to examine our lives in light of it. In light of this holy standard. To to examine our lives and see do they match up. James doesn't want anyone to think that they're a Christian if they're really not one. And so he is intentionally intrusive. And this letter is intentionally intrusive. One of the things that James makes clear time and time again is that what Scripture teaches throughout, and that is this, that genuine saving faith is marked by how you live. Genuine saving faith is marked by how you live. The one who is truly saved will be characterized by certain behavior. Over time, the truth is going to be known because how you live is proof of what you actually believe to be true. And so the way you live is a test. It's a test that reveals whether your faith is true or whether it is not. And and James in this letter gives us many tests with which to test our faith. And as we come to these final verses now in chapter 1, James gives us three tests. Three tests to examine our lives by. Look at these verses again. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. In this passage, James says, true religion is manifested in how you live. We, we all live out our beliefs. Every person lives out what they really believe to be true. And so our behavior is a gauge of our profession of faith. It's a gauge, to, to, to use James' word, of our religion. Now you might not like to think of yourself as religious. You might not like to think of Christianity as a religion. That's because these words that James uses here, religion and religious, don't generally have a positive connotation in our culture. You'd be hard-pressed to to find many people who would answer the question positively, are you religious? Most people, even if you took a poll of people on their way out of churches on Sunday morning, would go, no. What, What would they say instead? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's a common one. What they mean is, I I hold to certain spiritual beliefs, but I do not want to conform myself. I don't want to, to be associated with the formalism and the ritualism and the rigidity of religion. Or perhaps the, the more popular Christian expression, it's not religion, it's relationship. What they mean is the essence of Christianity is not a list of duties. It's not a list of external rituals, but instead a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. It's very important. The essence of Christianity is a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's true. And that's important. But words like religion and religious are not at odds with that. These are not problematic words that James is using. The, the, the fact that these words didn't used to have a negative connotation. 
You just go back a couple generations and you ask a Christian, are you religious? And they say, yes, I am. I believe in the Lord Jesus. They would have no issue answering your question. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, his, his greatest work is called The Religious Affections. It's, it's all about the, the pure bliss of the Christian in God. It's, it's not a word that was, was considered negative. The fact that these words have picked up a negative connotation says more about our culture and our church culture than it does about the words themselves. We want to distance ourselves from anything formal. From anything that's not about feelings and goosebumps. And in James' day, these are not negative words. And so we hear him use these words. We need to understand how James is using them. They're, they're neutral words. You ask a Jew, are you religious? Yes, I am. I'm a Jew. You ask a Muslim, are you religious? Yes, I am. I'm a Muslim. To be religious just means a worshiper. It's a word that refers to the external practices of a worshiper. And that's exactly what James is getting at in his use of these words here. What you believe will be manifested in how you live. What you believe will be manifested in your religion, in your external practice, in your, your religiousness, in how you live it out, in, in the living out of what you believe. Beliefs dictate behavior. Someone who truly believes in Christ is going to live differently than someone who doesn't. It's a guarantee. It's a sure thing. You, you need to understand that you cannot hide true saving faith. It cannot be hidden. If it's real, it will manifest itself. If it is genuine, it's going to be evident. The reason for that is this. When God saves a person, he transforms them. He makes them a whole new creation. He gives them a new mind. He gives them a new heart. He gives them a new will to obey him. And so true believers are going to be characterized by obedience to God's word because God has done this transforming work in them. So true religion, that is the true worship of the true God, is characterized by obedience to God's word. It's manifested in how the worshiper lives. And so James is calling us again in these verses to examine ourselves and say, am I a true worshiper of God? Do I have true religion? James here again in these verses gives us three tests to reveal our true spiritual Condition. And the first is this control of our tongue. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Perhaps as you sit here today, you think that you're religious in the way that James uses the word a true worshiper of the true God. And that's how you see yourself. I'm a true worshiper of the true God. You believe that you are, have entered into a saving relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your opinion of yourself that on the day of judgment, when you stand before the throne of God, that you will be saved from the wrath of God because you have put your trust in Christ. In your mind, you have no doubt of not only the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but that he lived, died, and rose again for you. And that your sins are forgiven. But James challenges us here to examine ourselves. And he says to you, what about your tongue? What about your tongue? What does your speech say about the true condition 
of your spiritual life. If God puts you on trial, based on your words, what would the verdict be? How's your speech characterized? What's, what's typical of your words and the way you talk? What's the habit of your tongue? Do you have a lying tongue? Proverbs 12, says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. He hates them. Do you have a proud tongue? James will tell us in chapter 3, verse 5, The tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body, set on fire, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Do you have an angry tongue? James will tell us in chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is one lawgiver and one judge, and he he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you think God takes it lightly when we trash one another, brothers and sisters in the church? And we think it's not a big deal. Do you have a gossiping tongue? Proverbs 10, verse 18. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Whoever utters slander is a fool. Are you quick to share that little tidbit of information about somebody? Are you quick to have that little quiet conversation off to the side? Do you have a cursing tongue? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do you have a destructive tongue? One that tears down instead of builds up? Psalm 52 verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Do you have a divisive tongue? <clears throat> Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions. Create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. Do, do your words inflame discontent? Or do they produce peace and joy? And contentment in Christ. Do you have a grumbling tongue? James chapter 5 verse 9 will tell us, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Christians, does God care if we grumble against one another? Clearly he does. Do you have a critical tongue? Galatians 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you don't consume one another. Are you quick to be critical of another believer, worse yet, a member of your own local church? Do you have a negative, complaining tongue? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk 
come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up that fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words give grace? Or do your words destroy and bring down? How would God characterize your speech? Friends, your words reveal the true spiritual condition of your soul. Your lips tell the truth about your heart. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your lips tell the truth about your heart. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. We can't see your heart, but we can hear your heart through your words. The the habits of the tongue are forged and built in the hearth of the heart. that's, That's what produces what comes out of our mouths. Therefore, the tongue is a gauge of who you really are. I can remember growing up, hearing my dad say some one million times to us as boys, what you think about is what you talk about, and what you talk about is who you really are. True words. It's what James is revealing to us. That's what God's word reveals to us over and over and over again. It's why Jesus goes on here in Matthew 12 to say that your words will either justify you or condemn you on the day of judgment. He says in verse 36 of Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every careless whisper off to the side. Every careless text message. Every careless word you type. Every careless word. Then Jesus says this, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What does Jesus mean? Does he mean our words save us? Well, no, of course he doesn't mean that. Christ saves by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. But your words are a window. Your your words are a window into your heart's true condition. And from them, we can discern the state of your soul. Words don't save, words reveal. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The the words reveal the heart, the true spiritual condition of the person. So then James gives us this test in verse 26 to reveal our true spiritual condition. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? Worthless. What's a bridle? A bridle is used in a horse's mouth to control the horse, to direct it where it should go, what it should do. A horse that is not bridled is a horse that is not controlled. And James tells us a tongue that is not bridled is a tongue that is not controlled. And if your tongue is not controlled, it reveals a heart that is unrestrained. 
It reveals a heart that is disobedient and rebellious. You may consider yourself religious, a true worshiper of the true God. But friend, if your tongue is uncontrolled, James says to you, you are deceived. You've been misled about who you really are, about the true state of your soul. You do not have an accurate understanding of where you stand with God. And if your heart is deceived, that deception is very deep. The heart is the seat of the soul. It represents all that you are. It represents how you think. It represents what you feel. It represents what you desire. Your heart is your identity. And deception about your very identity is the most destructive of deceptions. Identity shapes behavior. And so to be deceived about who you really are causes confusion and chaos in every aspect of your entire life. Oh, to think you're saved when your mouth is characterized by sin is a deep deception. In reality, according to James, your profession of faith, your religion, to use James's word, is worthless. It's worthless. It it has no use. Your profession of faith is empty and powerless because it hasn't brought a change in how you actually live. It's a a powerless profession of faith because a, a true one changes the way you live. Do you have control over your tongue, brother, sister? As we've seen from the text of scripture we've read, it's about more than than a list of words that we're allowed to say in polite company and a list of words we're not allowed to say in polite company. God has strong words to say about how we speak. What's the verdict? What's the verdict based on the record of your speech? Does, Does your speech reveal that you've been transformed by the gospel or does it reveal that you remain unconverted in your sin? That's test number one. Test number two, you can be upset with James. He's the one doing this to you. He did it to me for like hours and hours this whole week while I worked on it. So, Test number two that reveals your true spiritual condition is this. Care for the needy. Care for the needy. He, he says in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit widows or orphans and widows in their affliction. Okay, so the opposite of worthless religion as pure and undefiled religion. The opposite of worthless and vain worship is pure and undefiled worship. That's the the kind of religion we are to practice. It's the only kind of worship that God accepts, pure and undefiled. We don't want religion that is mere ritualism, do we? We don't want religion that is just outward show. That kind of religion is corrupt. It's it's evil. Worthless religion seeks glory from men rather than the worship of God. And Jesus condemns that at every turn. He says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Practicing righteousness... But doing it from the motivation of wanting to be seen by others. And Jesus says, you'll have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Why? Because you're not going there. 
That's why. One of the examples Jesus gave of this kind of wicked show religion was giving in order to be seen. Giving in order to be seen so that you could receive the praises of men. In your giving, in your serving, in your helping, always having an eye towards how are other people seeing me do this and and how are they going to respond to me because of it. What kind, of, what kind of honor will I receive for this? And Jesus says this in, in the second verse of, verse of Matthew chapter 6. Just after saying, practicing your righteousness before other people, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. He says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have your reward. In other words, if that is how you're serving God, is, is that you're concerned well, I hope other people notice and see what I'm doing. Then Jesus says, you better soak it up. You better soak up whatever praise you get from men because that's all you're getting. That's all the reward that there's going to be. There will be no reward from God, only condemnation. Religion that isn't the true worship of God coming from a regenerate heart is corrupt. It's vile. It is immoral. It is nothing but, but filth. It is an abomination to the Lord. Rather, we should desire, James says, pure and undefiled worship. These two words, pure and undefiled. One positive, one negative. Are synonyms. They, they express the same idea. Pure, clean, unsoiled, undefiled, free from stain, unpolluted. This is the only kind of worship that's pleasing in God's sight. It is true religion, James says. It is worship that is blameless, James says, before God the Father. Those are important words here in verse 27. Before God the Father. The theological term for this is quorum Deo. That that all of our life is lived before God. In the presence of God. Of God. All that we do is done in the presence of God. All that we are, all that we do is, is done before God. David confesses in, in Psalm 139, verse 1 O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows everything about you. Your life is lived before God. In the presence of God. God knows more about you than you know about yourself. He, he sees into your heart perfectly. He knows your motivations. He is not fooled by pretense. And James says one true test of true worship is whether you visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Orphans and widows were especially needy. In ancient society, there were very few resources available to help them. They they were marginalized in the community because of all of their needs. They had nothing but need and nothing to offer. And they suffered greatly. And so they're representative here in, in, in this text of all who are unable to care for themselves. And here's what's true of God. God is always compassionate. God gives special mercy, we see in Scripture, to the neediest. In Psalm chapter 68, verse 5, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. 
It's no wonder then that in the Old Testament, God gives special provision for those without husbands and those without parents. God commands Israel in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That word mistreat's a very broad term, but God is saying this, don't you dare harm them. Not in any way. Don't you dare harm the most vulnerable among you. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God takes it very seriously. He warns Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Israel must repent by bringing justice to the fatherless, by pleading the widow's cause. Israel had, God is coming against Israel. We, we read the continuation of that text this morning. Coming against Israel for their wickedness. And part of the way that wickedness was expressing itself, their, their wicked, rebellious hearts were expressing themselves in that the fatherless were getting injustice and the widows were being trampled over. It just revealed their hearts. It was a test of their hearts. God promises in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, that he himself is going to take up their cause. And that he, it says, executes justice for the father, fatherless and the widow. Because of his faithfulness to widows and orphans, God is exalted in Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Here, here this psalm adds this other category of people. Sojourners. It's just, these, these are the most vulnerable people. The Lord watches over them. God is to be praised. Because he gives special care. To the most vulnerable and neediest of people. God cares for the helpless. And so must his people. Pure religion is to visit the helpless in their distress. This, this word visit is rich with meaning. It doesn't mean you just stop in and say hello. It's to go to them with the intent to help them in their need. That's how God is described in scripture. The one who comes to the rescue of the helpless. The comforter of the afflicted. Genesis chapter 50 verse 24. Joseph is prophesying to his brothers and he says this, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to a land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So it's a very important promise here at the close of the book of Genesis because as we, we open up the, the book of Exodus, what situation does Israel find themselves in? They're enslaved. They're in slavery in Egypt. And Joseph says, God will visit you. He's not going to come make small talk. He's not going to come say hello. He's not going to say, boy, it's hard, I know. He'll come and he'll help. Ruth chapter 1 verse 6. We, we read that Naomi, who was without a husband, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and gave them food. Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesied about the coming of Christ. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There are numerous other examples of God visiting, of what it means 
This word is translated in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 as care. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? The son of man that you visit him. God visits his people to care for them, to to rescue them in their time of need, in their helplessness. And in the same way, those who are children of God must do as their father in heaven does. True Christians seek to care for the needy, especially the needy within the church. So so James writes in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, if a brother or sister, that is one within the family of God, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, worthless. If you profess faith, but don't lift a finger to help those in need, particularly your brothers and sisters then your disobedience proves that your faith is not genuine. The callousness of your heart proves that your faith is not genuine. Do do, do you have a faith that works, that resembles the Father's compassion for the helpless and the needy? Do you possess pure and undefiled religion that seeks to help the helpless, that seeks to comfort the afflicted? If not, James says to us, Your religion is worthless. And your faith is not genuine. That's the second test he gives us here. The third test that reveals our true spiritual condition is this. Devotion to holiness. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. True true religion not only reflects God's compassion, it reflects his holiness. This world and its rebellion is set against the holiness of God. It's a world that stands in opposition to God and his holiness. When God saves us, he doesn't remove us from the world. He doesn't zap us into heaven at the moment of our conversion. What does he do? He sends us into the world. That's by design. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples and he said this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're not of the world, but Jesus sends us into the world. It's a dangerous mission. The world is a dangerous place. The world is corrupt and the world is enticing. And our flesh, which remains vulnerable to temptation, is seduced by the world's delights. It lures us with many temptations, and we risk, even as we are sent by Christ into the world, we risk becoming worldly. Therefore, we must fight. We must fight to keep ourselves unstained by the world, as James says. As we live as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom in this polluted world, we must resist becoming like the world. 
Our challenge is to reach the world without becoming worldly. So we must always be vigilant. We must always be vigilant against the temptations and the allures of this world, guarding ourselves against worldly desires and worldly behaviors and worldly speech and worldly thought patterns and worldly values and worldly priorities. We have to be on guard. That's what this word keep means. To be on guard. To keep ourselves unstained from the world. The the one who is truly saved fights to keep himself unstained from the world. If there's no fight, there's no faith. So is there any fight in your faith? Is there any struggle and resistance to worldliness? Do you strive for holiness? Do you resist worldliness? We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without striving for holiness, you will not live in peace with God forever. Because it proves that you don't have saving faith to begin with. If your life doesn't reflect a concern for holiness, you have no reason to believe that you're bound for heaven. Three tests. Three tests James gives us. They're not the only tests. There are many tests in Scripture. These are three important tests that reveal your true spiritual condition. The question, friends, is how do you measure up? What's the verdict of your life? And as you sit here today and you think about your life, you might be realizing that you have fallen short. You've been weighed in the balance of God's truth and found wanting. You have regularly sinned with your tongue. You selfishly turned away from helping the needy. You've forsaken holiness in more ways than you would want anyone else to find out about. What then? Does that mean you're not saved? Does it mean you're self-deceived? It might It might mean that. It might not mean that. The true Christian is not perfect. It's not perfection that proves salvation. It's our response to imperfection that proves salvation. As you see more clearly where you fall short of God's holy standard, what's your response? I trust as the Spirit of God has who inspired our brother James to write these words as his word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, that that same Spirit has been working on you, convicting you of sin because he loves you. And not so that you'd fall into despair. What's your response? Do you hate the sin that's in you? Are you eager to confess it? Are you eager to call it what it is? As the Spirit of God puts his his finger right on that spot this morning, as his word is proclaimed, are you saying to God, God, help me, forgive me. This is wickedness in my heart. It's treasonous rebellion. Or is your internal lawyer arguing vigorously on your behalf of how you're not wrong and everyone who says different is mean? What's the response of your heart? 
Are you desperate to turn from it? Are you desperate to walk in obedience that pleases the Lord? If so, friend, though you fall short, as we all do, you have good cause. You have good cause to believe that you have saving faith. That Christ has made you a new creation and it's out of these desires that, that your heart breaks over your sin. That it's actually the kindness of God that convicts you of sin. You have, you have every reason. Though you must strive and fight to remain unstained by the world and to put sin to death, you have every reason to rest in the sufficiency of Christ for your salvation and all of your hope. God's not just tolerating you. He delights in you. But if you justify your sin, if you've been sitting here all morning making excuses, if you treat your sin casually, it's not a big deal. If you're indifferent to holiness, and friend, you need to repent. You need to repent right now because the wrath of God is coming for you. When you die, there will not be an opportunity to repent. This is the moment. When that day comes, the time for examining yourself will be over. Will God find your religion true? Or will he find it worthless? What's the verdict of your life right now? See, James doesn't want anyone to think they're a Christian if they're not. That includes us here this morning. We're not exempt from these calls in Scripture to examine ourselves. This isn't mean. This isn't judgmental. This is loving. This is God loving you. This is God being kind to you. When a person is self-deceived, they are deaf to the gospel. And James wants us to have ears to hear. And so he's going to get personal. He's going to ask us uncomfortable questions. He's not shy about telling us that we might be deceived. That our faith might not be real. That we might be fooling ourselves. What, what that should do in us is cause a measure of humility in us. It shouldn't cause us. James doesn't want us to be allowed to sit in the room and go, none of this is talking about me. So and so, I hope they're listening. This is definitely them. No. We don't get to sit back and divorce ourselves from from the examination of God's word. Should cause us to, to rightly examine ourselves. And so we must respond. We must respond to God's word with the utmost seriousness. We must look at our lives. Is there evidence of grace there? Are we growing in grace? And if not, here's the offer from God. Run to the one who gives grace freely. Come to him. Lay it all down and come to him and he'll have you. God never saves anyone begrudgingly. He will, he will rejoice over you. But you must come. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we've been challenged. We've been examined by your word. We've been challenged. 
Lord, we've seen in your word where we fall short and where we don't measure up. You have, by your spirit, identified areas in our life where we continue to to sin against you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that that for all who are in Christ, our sins are not weighed against us, that Christ has paid fully and sufficiently the debt of our sin, borne our condemnation in our place, given to us his own spotless righteousness. We've been given the Holy Spirit to dwell within us who who aids us in making war against sin, that we might put it to death, that we might grow in righteousness. And that is my prayer for us, Lord, that we would grow in righteousness, that we would grow in faithfulness. Let, let your conviction guide us to purity and to life and to worship and to joy and not to despair and condemnation. We know that we have an enemy. We know that we have an enemy who lies to us and deceives We pray, Lord, that you would, as Christ prayed for his disciples, keep us in the truth. Your word is truth. That you would keep us from the evil one, even as you have sent us into this world where we do face many trials and temptations and the allure of sin. And yes, we stumble and we fall. Lord, in this moment, we say we're not taking it lightly. We know. We know that rebellion against you is worthy of, of eternal punishment. And yet, Lord, by this spirit that you have given to us, we lift our eyes and behold Christ, the one who who bore our guilt and our shame and our condemnation, who lived for us, who died for us, who has risen again triumphant over sin and hell and death. And so, God, we look to Christ and we trust in him. And I do pray this morning in your mercy for any who don't know you, Lord, for those who are self-deceived, as James has described it, who, Lord, who are, who are not covenantally in relationship with you through your son, but instead are walking in rebellion, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes in your mercy by your spirit right now. Cause them to see the, the desperate condition that they're in and to run to the cross of Christ. Pray, God, that you would do this great work for them in your mercy and in your kindness. Thank you for bringing them here to hear the truth of your word. Pray, Lord, that you would grow us in godliness, that as we do, our joy would grow and become contagious, that we would, that we would be life-giving to one another as we bring glory to your name in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.